You're listening to the School of Reinvention podcast. I'm your host, Roger Osorio. I'm the author of The Journey to Reinvention, How to Build a Life Aligned with Your Values, Passion, and Purpose. I'm also the founder of The School of Reinvention, a community-based coaching platform where we help people define success on their terms and reinvent themselves to make it happen. I believe that as the years pass, our values, passions, and purpose evolve, and we must reinvent ourselves in order to stay aligned with who we really are and what matters to us. This podcast is all about exploring different journeys to reinvention so that you can learn the strategies for how to successfully launch your next reinvention. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the School of Reinvention podcast. I am your host, Roger Osorio. I'm a reinvention expert, coach, speaker, and author of the book, The Journey to Reinvention, How to Build a Life Aligned with Your Values, Passions, and Purpose. I'm excited to be here with Dr. Mark Williams, who is a professor of cognitive neuroscience with over 25 years of experience conducting behavioral and brain imaging research. Mark has published more than 70 scientific articles and received numerous high-profile fellowships and grants. He has made many TV and radio appearances to discuss topics including emotions, technology, education, racism, and even why we can't tickle ourselves, which is really interesting. His research has been featured in outlets globally, including the New York Times, The Economist, The Guardian, and New Scientist. Mark has worked with thousands of students, teachers, health professionals, and company directors keen to understand how their brain works, how to perform optimally, and maintain a healthy brain. He regularly runs programs on the neuroscience of learning, the neuroscience of emotions, how our brains create our reality, and the impact of modern technology on our brains. His new book, The Connected Species, How the Evolution of the Human Brain Can Save the World is scheduled to release on August 15th. However, it's available for pre-order now anywhere you buy books. Mark, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. I've always been fascinated personally by neuroscience and how it applies to my own areas of experience like teaching, coaching, speaking, facilitation. But I'm really excited to get your perspective on how it applies to reinvention and people going on their own journey to reinvention. So let's start with your journey. Tell us a little bit about your journey to reinvention. Help us get to know you a little bit better with all of its twists and turns. Thanks for that introduction, Roger. And thanks for having me on. I've been reinvented, I think, a few times in my life. It's been an interesting journey. And I can't say I've loved every moment of it, but it's definitely taught me a lot and made me the person I am today. When I was younger, I grew up in a small country town in um, Victoria in Australia, pretty remote area. And it was a very rough town. We, we had high unemployment back then. There was corporal punishment in schools, So we used to get the strap or the cane if we misbehaved. And my mother had mental illness and she used to self-medicate, which meant that there, there was lots of periods where family wasn't great, family life wasn't great. And so to avoid getting the cane or the strap when I went to school, I used to avoid school, which me and my mates used to go down fishing at the local lake and smoking pot most of the time. So I I wasn't academic at all. I didn't enjoy school at all. Avoided school (laughs) as much as I possibly could. And when I was 16, um, my principal actually told myself and my father that I would be dead or in prison by the time I was 25. So I should go and get a job at that local abattoir as an apprentice. I didn't. I went to Melbourne. I worked a variety of jobs, including the night shift. I did the night shift at a service station because it was good money so that I could get money to go over to Indonesia and surf as much as I possibly could, which is what I did most of the time. And I partied very hard. And it was when I was ironically 25 that two of my friends had drug overdoses and that just changed my perspective and I decided I need to change what was going on. I need to change me. So I went back to school and there was a physics teacher there that saw something in me, probably because I was the only mature age student there. So I was a bit odd. And he he convinced me that I was more intelligent than I'd ever thought I was and that I should go to university. So he convinced me to go to university and do science. And I did. And, And he changed my life. He really did. Because I went to university. I found my crew. I found a whole bunch of people who were weird like me and it really gelled with me. So I did a double major in physiology, neurophysiology in the medical faculty and psychology in the science faculty and then went on and did a PhD in the medical faculty. And I was then got a job at Melbourne University and then was lucky enough to get a position at uh, MIT as a research fellow, which was amazing to work at MIT for a number of years. And again, 
had a big impact on me, changed my perspective on life. But also I had an amazing professor there who I was working with and she she was so warm and encouraging and connected and one of those people that just really gelled with everybody and made everyone feel as though they were they had something to offer, which was amazing to a big shout out to her. So yeah, that was that was a big change. I then ended up coming back to Australia for a faculty position, a tenure position. And just recently, what about five years ago, I realized that I needed to make another change because I was feeling as though I had a lot to offer out there in the world. There's been huge changes in the way we perceive the brain and the way the brain works. And it doesn't seem to be getting into schools and it doesn't seem to be getting into organizations. And so I really felt as though at this stage in my life, I wanted to move on from being at a university where I mainly talk to other academics to actually getting out there in the real world. So I started my own business, which was a big change. You know, running your own business is very, very different to being a tenured academic and doing research and applying for grants. So that's been another huge change that's occurred in the last five, six years. But it's been fantastic. I, I absolutely love getting out there. There are so many neuromyths out there. There is so many much misunderstanding about how the brain works. And we can really improve the world by actually understanding it better. And we can really improve everybody's lives by understanding it better. But we just need to get the truth out there rather than, you know, there's a lot of yeah, a lot of nonsense that's uh, still bandied around that we need to get rid of. That's an incredible story. I mean, there's so much to unpack there. So, I mean, I, I'm going to go, you know, back to some of the beginning parts and, you know, hearing about your start and, you know, maybe for lack of a better term, we'll call it the late start. You know, like you said, that teacher maybe approached you because you were obviously more mature than most of the students in his class. And so, you know, he already singled you out as someone who was different and a little bit older, more mature. So we'll say you got a late start. But I think it's really powerful, or I should say empowering about that story for listeners is that, you know, sometimes we can really beat ourselves up along our journey to reinvention, because we might think I, I wasted time or, or I, you know, I missed an opportunity or I should have been doing this. And by the way, I say this because I've done that. I've done that plenty of times where I felt bad for not having done something earlier. And then I saw that as wasted time, which of course served no purpose except to make me feel bad. And what I love about your story is how, you know, here's what I think, you know, if I was worried about not having taken a business opportunity at 27 or 28, and that I waited until much later to figure that out, not starting your, you know, formal education, your like, you know, your higher ed education, all of that until 25. I mean, for most people who have been brought up to believe that starts at 18, that's like just, you know, you feel already like, wow, like, how would I start life so far behind? And I think that's really important. It, you know, your journey to get to where you are took the time that it took. And obviously, it was not part of a plan or anything like that. You, you responded to your situation the best you could, you know, you, you rolled with the life that you know, you were dealt, but it didn't mean that you couldn't go and do something else. And the other part that I heard in that early part of the story, especially like through your higher ed years, you know, when you were getting your degrees and all of that was key people that came into your life. And I think that's another thing that's really important for anybody listening. And I mean, it's the journey to reinvention can often seem very lonely. But what I'm hearing in your story is that, but there are key people who will find you on that journey and they will play an important, a massive role, not just like a massive role. And it's like you said, if it wasn't for that physics instructor who, you know, showed some faith in you, who believed that there was something in you, maybe you wouldn't have taken the next step. And then you talked about that another professor at university, you know, who also played a massive role and had a big impact on you. A question that I have about that period, you know, you mentioned that when you got to university, you chose a neuroscience, I, I can't remember which, neuropathology, is that what you said? Physiology, neurophysiology. Neurophysiology and psychology. What inspired that? <laughs> I think that it was that the psychology was definitely because I wanted to understand my family and and myself and why I was so screwed up because I was I mean it's I was uh, yeah I messed up a lot in those younger years and I wanted to understand why we do that why we, why we mess up our own lives when we're going through difficult times and why why we respond to people in negative ways. So that's mainly why I did psychology. It's not it's not a good way to actually do therapy, to actually try and work out how to how to help your own family, because you can't help your own family, let's face it. You you've got a you know 
allow them to go through the journey themselves. But yeah, I think I chose psychology for that reason. I chose neurophysiology because I just fell in love with how our brains work. I, 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 back then, we were starting to realise that perception wasn't real and that what we were perceiving was, was generated by our brains and was, uh, a lot of it was illusion. So I had a, a particular set of lectures which were around perception and illusions and how we generate the reality that we see. And that just absolutely fascinated me because that really changed my whole perspective on life. I almost had you know, some sort of crisis around the fact that the world wasn't real. At the same time, The Matrix was big. Well, a little bit later, but The Matrix also became big, which also fascinated me. And so, yeah, that, that's why I got into the neurophysiology side of things. And I think I also liked the fact, you know, we were recording for neurons and we were, you know, doing all the hard what we call the hard science. And I, I like that side of it because I like to be able to put things into boxes and to be able to measure things really accurately, whereas psychology is the complete opposite where everything's very general and, and, and much more difficult to put into those boxes. So I think I like that, that juxtaposition between the two. What I love about your response there, and this is super important for anyone on the journey because I think a lot of times we can get held up on making a decision for maybe like a class that we need to take or a degree we need to pursue or the job that we take next, you know, as if there is a way to perfectly plan out our lives so that it works flawlessly. And obviously we know that will never happen. And to hear your very real reasons as to why you pursued something, you know, partly because you had a personal need for that information, for that, for that knowledge to maybe help you just understand something about your family, you know, partly a little bit, you know, just the times and, you know, some topics that were part of the pop culture, part of what was interesting at that time. This mix of reasons, I think that is really interesting because when I've interviewed a lot of other people who've made really interesting decisions, you know, I think we all want to believe that there was some just perfectly crafted strategy that led them down that path. And then you hear something like, you know, I just needed extra money. <laughs> and that was paying like better than the other options. So I just picked that one. And by the way, that's like mine right there. Like at one point on my journey, I picked something that put me on a path that I mean, changed my life for eight years. I spent as a math teacher, but I initially got onto it to make some extra money to pay off student loans. You know, you got into it because of a need to understand your family better and a few other things. And so I want to lift that up because I think that's really key. Okay, so let's talk about the focus of your work because you had a major pivot not that long ago. I think you mentioned about five, six years ago when you went from research to starting your own business. You went from, uh, you know, applying for research grants to figuring out ways to earn revenue. Very different mindset, very different way of approaching things. There was something you said there about like also what drove that, you know, you you realized that there was a problem that needed to be resolved, specifically that the knowledge and the science around how the brain works doesn't work its way into schools and companies or organizations as much as it should, given how much we do know and how much is validated today. And by the way, this is why when you reached out and we started connecting around this topic, I was like, I want to talk to you because that's what got me into education. I realized, how is it that we know so much about the brain and we're not using it to help students do better at math, improve? It's there, like the information is there, but teachers aren't trained in that. So tell us a little bit about that problem that you identified and, the, and your inspiration there. And then from there, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about your business and kind of that journey to going from an employee to an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it sort of it relates to what you were just saying around that it feels as though you've wasted a lot of time and me going back to school when I was 25 um, and having all those things happen to me when I was younger seemed like a, a waste and I was, you know, I'd wasted all that time. But when, when I was at university and I, I got the tenure position and so on, I was actually approached by uh, a program that's been run by the federal government called LEAP where universities given a pool of money to actually spend to, to go out into remote areas and to go out to areas which have uh, low socioeconomic status so that the, the much poorer areas of Australia and work with the schools to actually convince the, the students to consider doing higher education to actually get an education and perhaps go to go to the city to actually go to university and so on so I was approached because of the fact that I had that rough time earlier on and because I come from country town. And so they asked me if I would be willing to actually do 
presentations um, and, and to go on some of those excursions. So some of the, we, we always go out for a week because, you know, we're going to distant areas and we spend a week in schools and we usually hit up about 20 schools at a time. And we go into the schools and work with the students and also they ask me to do some work around the teachers and the teachers working with the teachers actually came about because when I was presenting to the students on neuroscience and the fact that there's plasticity and heavy and learning and how they can actually learn better and how important it is and all these things a lot of the teachers would come up to me afterwards and say hey I had no idea about some of that stuff and hey could you how would I do this or how would I do that and I went wow you know and, and so I started talking to them about what they knew and what they were doing in the classroom and realized there was so much more we could do and so I started working within that framework within those schools those much poorer schools with those students and with those teachers but I realized it was universal it wasn't just those organizations there was a lot of other organizations as well that had no idea what was going on I mean we as academics we're fairly isolated most of the time because we go to conferences with each other and we talk to each other and we all know what the research is all about we know what the results have been and so on but it doesn't actually yet yeah, seem to be translating out there into the real world. So that's sort of why I transitioned because I've been doing that for a number of years and I've been seeing a lot of positive results from it. And I've had a lot of students who never thought of going to the university and turning up at the university and saying, hey, you gave me your card and said, come and see me when, when, if you arrive. And it was amazing, extremely rewarding for me. And it showed me that all that stuff that happened in my early days actually was worthwhile. It was actually you know, making a big difference in a lot of kids' lives now, which was really, yeah, very uplifting for me. And so that's when I started to make this shift. I, I went part-time to begin with. I sort of felt the water. So I was part-time at, at this university and part-time working with schools and working with organisations. I had uh, a, a large consultancy firm contact me and, and they asked me to come in and do a whole bunch of work with them and that made me realise, yeah, this is a real need and that's when I went, okay, I'm going to do it full time now, which was great. And then I had to work out how to run a business, which was a whole different ball game. And I spent probably, yeah, I'm still I'm still trying to work out how to do it properly. Um, I'm not good with the money side of things and I'm not good with the administration side of things, but I'm getting there. I'm really not good with the sales side of things. That's, that's the thing that really gets the eye because I've never experienced, I've never done it before. And so, yeah, it's a learning experience, but it's great. It's We, we learn all the time and I'm really enjoying that process of actually learning how to do all those things, which is awesome. Uh, and it gives me, yeah, a lot of confidence. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you, you have those sleepless nights and you have those nights where you wake up in a sweat thinking, what the hell have I done? But it's but it's great, you know. And I'm still doing a lot of that leap stuff. So I still do a lot of pro bono work with those poorer schools, which, again, I really love. And so, yeah, it's, it's this. But, again, that's <laughs> I want to do more of that, but I can't do more of that because I've actually got to keep the business running at the same time. So, you know, there's this whole juggle between the pro bono stuff, working with the low socioeconomic areas and and actually yeah keeping the doors open <laughs> i mean everything you just said first of all i i totally hear you and we're going to come back to this part about running the business and how that's a different challenge than what you're really good at than that skill that you developed in the leap program when you were just visiting the universities to do the work and help drive the change and then you know then you decided to turn it into a business and the business part is different going back to that project the leap project I think that's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that I often talk about is how reinventions start with a project, that all great reinventions start with some sort of project, a way that someone gets to either sample the thing that they think they're interested in or discover that they're interested in something and that there is an opportunity. And from, from what I'm hearing, you got involved in this program, which sounds like it was incredibly fortunate because, like you said, academics are mostly isolated. So there aren't too many opportunities to get out into the field and really see the impact or how some of the, the research you all are doing is applied, you know, in the real world. And so for you to have that opportunity, you got to now get exposure to this problem right there up front and close. And you were able to see what it was and, and begin making an impact. And then it sounds like you found the way to kind of do a 50-50 where you were like, you know, let me make it a side hustle. Let me take this project to a, to a side hustle level, if I understood this correctly. And then you managed both for a little while until you decided it was time to go full-time entrepreneur mode. 
And I wanted to lift that particular story up because there are people on that are listening to this podcast who might be considering something like that. They, they want to maybe go into full-time entrepreneurship. But this is the real story of how it happens. You know, sometimes I think that, and I know I've been in this spot where I've sat down to think, what's the business opportunity that I could pursue? You know, and, and while, yes, I'm sure I can Google it, top 100 business opportunities right now in 2023, and I could get a list and all of that. But am I going to go after those with interest, passion, and purpose? Probably not. I'll probably look at it and say, wow, that one makes a lot of money. And I could do it. But maybe I won't be as happy. But what you described is a more organic way where you got involved. And by getting involved in something, you discovered something about yourself. And then you took action on that discovery and what you learned about yourself. And you decided step by step to get it to the point where you can now make that decision that it's time to go into full-time entrepreneurship and figuring that out. So let's talk a little bit more about this different challenge, because I totally hear you. And I think this is really important for people to hear these stories about like, hey, look, I do this really, really well, but now I wanna do it as a business, which means I have to operationalize things. I have to figure out how to sell it. I have to build my pipeline. I've gotta execute the work that I'm doing while building more pipeline. I've got to invoice people and all of these things that happen. And by the way, I hear you, I'm still figuring all that stuff out. I feel like it's a constant and never ending area of improvement for me at least. And it's one that I'm still learning a lot about, so I can appreciate the challenge. But let's talk a little bit more about that shift, because that's a shift in mindset. It's almost like you're two people now. You're the, you're the person who delivers the service, but you're also the person who operates the business. Yeah, I think it's free. I think there's also there's a person who sells the business, and I think that's the one that I really struggle with. The operating, I, I spent a lot of time reading books, been an academic, it was like, yeah, all right, let's get down to how this all actually works, because I've never done anything in that area in economics or you know, business related stuff. I had um, a very good friend, actually, who is in the business school at Macquarie University, and he used to also come on the LEAP programs with me as well. He's got an interesting background as well. And he, he was amazing with the students actually teaching them business programs and so on. He's won a lot of awards for his teaching. He actually teaches business through the Disney stories, so the stories, the seven dwarfs and all these sorts of things. And he uses those stories to actually teach different concepts in economics and in business when he's actually lecturing, which is just amazing. Um, and he has yeah, an amazing way to actually teach. So I spent a lot of time chatting to him about the business side of things and how to do that. But I also yeah, read a lot to actually understand that. But to be honest, it's the selling side of things, which is, I think is different again, actually putting yourself out there, being willing to actually go, hey, I, I've got something worthwhile and I'm going to advertise it and I'm going to stick it on LinkedIn and I'm going to stick it on Facebook and I'm going to get people to sign up. And that, I think, was more challenging for me because as an academic, we are constantly criticising each other because it's part of what we do, right? And so I was thinking I would be criticised for that. I would be you know, knocked down for that. Plus, being an academic, it's almost a, a dirty word to say you're going to sell yourself. You're going to actually go out there and actually make money from what you do. And so, yeah, that that's the thing that I really had the most trouble with, that I could learn how to run the business. I could learn how to you know, all the th forms I need to fill in. And there are a lot of forms to fill in. And there's lots of things, you, insurances and all that. I, I must admit there was periods where yeah, someone said, you've got this. And I was like, no, I don't. And they're like, you've got to have that. So, uh, yeah, there was lots of periods where I made mistakes in that area. But I think, uh, yeah, it really was the sales area and advertising that I had the most trouble with because I really, and I still do, I still put in up posts and stuff. I still feel a little dirty for doing it. And I shouldn't. And there's no reason for it, and I've never had any backlash from it. And I try to do it in a, in a in a um, responsible and you know everything I do is based on research and is based on really good scientific background. So there's no reason why I should feel that way. But of course we all do. I mean, we have this tall poppy syndrome here in Australia, which is you know we knock down anyone who puts their head up high, which is probably also part of that. But yeah, it's it, that's I find the hardest thing. So yeah, I would say there's three aspects to it, but yeah, two or three, whatever you want, however you want to put it. But only because that's a bit I find hard. Now I totally hear you on that. I mean, it sounds like you're also up against, like you said, a, there, there's culture 
you know, that there, there are cultural influences at play here as well that you were raised with. Mm-hmm. And so you're battling some of that. I think that I, I started learning about this, you know, the, the idea of just that focusing on sales part, right? What you said is a challenge. When I published my book, I realized, wow, I thought writing the book was going to be the hard part. And then I realized, no, selling the book is a hard part. <laughs> writing it was actually relatively easy compared to like this idea of like, wow, how do I sell this thing? And yeah, I totally get you. I think it's a really, I appreciate you sharing it that way and that it's still something you're working on. And, and I'll, I'll, you know, put myself in that same group. I'm still working on it as well. It's something that I'm still trying to get better at because usually I'm the one who focuses on helping people, coaching, teaching, you know, whatever it might be like I'm in the room with the person. And so I'm starting to pay attention to how other people do it. And one of the things that I've noticed is some businesses do a really great job of separating sales from the person who is who's delivering, you know, the service, because, of course, you know, depending on the nature of the work, like, you know, you maybe don't want to be the person who sells to that client because you're like, hey, I need to work with you in a way where you don't feel like, you know, you just had to pay a price that maybe you didn't completely agree with, even though I know you'll agree with the outcome. Right now, you might not be too happy. I need you to be happy for this to become a good outcome so that everyone's happy. And it's, you know, it's really important to have that, I I think, uh, split even at times. So yeah, definitely a challenging area. Let's talk a little bit about your particular work in neuroscience. You know, one of the areas is neuroplasticity. This is a topic that when you and I had the chance to have a prep call, we really got into this area. And it's, a, it's an area that for me is what inspired me to do the work that I did in math, because I always believed my math students, and you've probably, maybe you've heard this, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the US, you know, math is one of the hated subjects, one of the subjects that most people will say, I'm not a math person. And I would always tell them, well, that's BS because there's no such thing as a math person. There's no math gene. There's no any of this. So actually, we're all math people if we want to be. And it's just a matter of how we do it. And our brains can figure it out. Like we are totally capable of doing it. And so I love this idea of neuroplasticity because, well, obviously, this is, you know, uh, grounded in research. It's a very real idea and it's a very empowering idea for people on the journey to reinvention who are looking to go in a direction that they've never walked before. And now they're thinking, how will I ever fill in the blank, learn this, acquire that knowledge or do whatever it is that I have to do that I haven't done before? Well, it's because our brains can. So let's talk a little bit about your perspective on uh, neuroplasticity and and please go into go into researcher and professor mode. Teach us a little. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Neuroplasticity. It's especially because I'm getting a bit older. <laughs> I won't say how old, but I'm getting a bit older. It's fantastic that we now know and we've now discovered that neuroplasticity is occurring throughout our lives. There's not this idea. So we used to think a Piaget's theory, who, who was very famous, had these stages, critical periods that kids would go through. And if they didn't meet those critical periods, if they didn't meet those developmental stages, then they would never be able to develop those abilities, whatever they happen to be. And then once you got to your adult or late teen years, then you were, you were set in stone and then that was it for the rest of your life. And then things would just slowly deteriorate after that, which was pretty sad for all of us who got past our teen years, right? And then we discovered that's not true at all. There aren't any critical periods. There aren't any critical periods during those early developmental periods. And he had actually based that that theory on really early development of your brain, which occurs when you're in the womb. And that during that period, yes, there are critical periods, but there's no critical periods in relation to abilities like you know reading or writing or arithmetic or any of those things. And we can learn anything we want to learn later on in life, which is really, really awesome. And our brains are constantly changing. So, you know, the other thing that we now know isn't true. So things like uh, IQ tests and personality tests and all these are based on the assumption that, again, your brain's set, that once you get to a certain age, your brain is set and therefore it won't change any, any longer. And, and parents will get IQ tests done for children and then children will be put into classes based on those IQ tests. And that's where they end up. But that's only where they end up because they're put into those classes. And therefore, they're not actually pushed to actually learn those things. And so therefore, they don't ever learn those things. But your IQ can change dramatically over your life. Even during your teen years now, we know your IQ can change up to 15 basis points, which means that during those teenage years, you can go from an average intelligence to a high, high 
a level of intelligence. Or you can go from an average intelligence to a, a, a significantly low level of intelligence, depending on what you're doing during those teen years. It's even more dramatic during the childhood years, but your IQ even in, in your adult life changes dramatically, depending on what you're doing and what you're not doing. So we have to remember that, that we can learn anything. We now know that you can learn a language to a level of proficiency where a native speaker can't tell that you're not a native speaker when you're 60 years old. <laughs> and if you do that, it'll actually, if you learn a new language when you retire, it can decrease the likelihood of you getting dementia or um, other neurodegenerative diseases by up to 10 to 15 years. And your life will be longer by up to 10 to 15 years if you learn a new language in your 60s and 70s or if you learn a new instrument you know and learn to play an, an instrument in your 70s and 60s and 70s so we know it's changing constantly and we can learn anything if we want to actually learn it because our brains are plastic right they're changing all the time so your brain is going to be different after this podcast than it was before this podcast because of the fact that your brain's going to change based on what you actually heard and what you if you listen to to, to us but if you don't listen to us, then it won't change, of course, if you're distracted by something else. So we can. We can we can learn any new ability. You know, I often get people sort of try to come back at this and they'll say, oh, yeah, but what about artists? You know, artists, you know, amazing because they were born artists. And it's like, well, I, I've got a very, very good friend who's a very famous children's book author and artist, and his books are amazing. He's beautiful. But if you talk to him, he used to get in trouble when he was at school because he was constantly doodling rather than actually concentrating on class, right? He he spent all of his childhood drawing, and that's how he became an amazing drawing. I don't know if it's true, but there's an anecdote about Picasso, and Picasso supposedly was in a, a, a cafe and he was doodling on a little napkin and then he went to throw the napkin out and someone said who was saw him doodling on the napkin said, oh, can I have that napkin that you've been drawing on? And he said, yeah, no problem, $5 million. And the person said, why, why, why do I have to pay $5 million? You only spent 10 minutes doodling on it. You weren't really concentrating. And he said, well, it took me 50 years to learn how to doodle like that. And that's why it costs you $5 million, right? We all learn these abilities and people become amazing at these abilities because they spend time doing them. And that's what all we need to do. If you want to get good at something, you've just got to spend time doing it and your brain will change and you'll get better at that thing. But you'll also get worse if you're not doing things. So we also need to be really careful yeah. about that. If we're, if we're sitting in front of TV, if we're you know scrolling constantly on Facebook, if we're doing things that aren't actually activating our brains, which are dumbing us down, then our brain's also atrophy. So we also have to be careful about that because that's also a big issue. That's a that's an incredibly powerful idea. You know, it cuts both ways. I mean, it could it could improve you, but it, you could also have a decline in your abilities if you don't feed your brain. If you don't, or I should say, maybe it sounds like more like exercise your brain and and keep it sharp. I, I you know I really like what you said here about you know what's possible even at sixty that you said someone can learn a brand new language and sound like a native speaker it, it, having learned the language at sixty years old. And the impact, of course, that, that just the health benefits that has. But even if we just put that to the side, just the possibility that this is a doable thing and that the science is there to back it up. This is really important because there are people who are 30 who are saying, like, I studied whatever, fill in the blank. I cannot become this or I've never been a math person. I cannot become that at 30. People will say that or even younger. Like, you know, one of the things that I've I've done searches for in part of my research for the book and for other things has been like, what do people research or search for in Google related to reinvention? And, you know, of course, one of the questions is, can I reinvent myself in my 60s? Which, by the way, short answer to that, you just said, yes, absolutely. But there's also questions, 50s, 40s, 30s, 20s. I was like, 20s, really? Like, are we thinking about this? But I get it. You know, it's, I think that a lot of times we are, it's, it goes back to, I think, what you said. You know, there's these IQ tests, personality tests, all grounded in an assumption, a false assumption that we are fixed, that whatever we are when that test was taken, that is what we will always be. So I can carry that badge with me and say like, hey, I'm a whatever, you know, IQ and I could run around for the next 50 years of my life saying that, which to your point, possibly false, could be better, could be worse. So we don't really know if you don't maintain it. But that applies, I think, to so many other things. You know, we walk around with our degrees. No, I studied accounting or I studied marketing or I studied finance or whatever I might have studied or I studied engineering or medicine. 
I, I can't get off of that. I can't get off that path now. Like, I don't know anything about running a business or I don't know anything about marketing or whatever it might be. But again, that's the whole point of neuroplasticity is that, and, and this is actually, you know, what I love about this is neuroplasticity is probably the reason why I got on the path that I got onto. Because if I didn't believe in this, I don't think I would have made the pivot, first of all, my own pivot, meaning that I thought that I believed I could learn something new from national account sales to teaching math. But what inspired me to do that work was knowing that that was possible for the students and then getting into coaching and teaching and all and speaking. And uh, all of these things that I've done has always been in service of empowering people with this idea that whatever you want to learn, and that's the key, you have to want to learn it. I can't force you to learn a new language if you don't want to learn a new language, but you can learn a new language. And that's the key here. And if you want it, let's go find a way. That's just a matter of how we'll figure out how you just got to know that it is possible and you have to decide that you want to do it. And so this, this is just so powerful. One of the last things you've said was that it is so important that because it goes both ways, we need to be doing something. We need to be practicing. We need to be working. We need to be taking action. We can't just sit around, not do nothing and hope that the, our brains are just going to naturally get better. Because to your point, they will most likely get worse. They will atrophy over, you know, during a period of time where you're not stimulating it enough. And so when I think about people's journey to reinventions, I think this is the, this is where projects play a role. You know, when you got into the leap project, you were given time to do that work over and over and over again. And through repetition, figure out how to make an impact in the school, you know, working with young people. So by the time you made the, the official pivot to full-time entrepreneur, you had already you know, through plasticity, neuroplasticity, developed yourself into someone who could do that, who could do that somewhere else outside of a research institution. Tell us a little bit more about how people can apply these ideas more intentionally, whether it's in major pivots, you know, think back to your own experiences, or even just in the day to day, so that we can make the most of this science. Yeah, great. That's a great question. Because one of the big problems at the moment is that we're we're constantly busy, but we're not actually getting anything done. So we're less productive today these days than we've ever been. And productivity has really taken a huge dive over the last 10, 15 years. And, and so why is that happening? That's happening because we're constantly distracted. So we're constantly distracted by things in our, in our environment. But to actually learn something, for, for your brain to actually change, what needs to happen is you need to hold that information in your working memory for long enough so they've been transferred to then a temporary store so they can be transferred to your long-term memory so it can actually change your brain. What's your working memory? Your working memory is actually consciousness. It's what you're aware of, right? What you're aware of at any point in time. So hopefully you're listening to me at the moment and that's what's in your working memory at the moment because you're trying to work out what I'm saying and also a lot of my other things around my prosody, my voice and stuff to work out how I'm feeling and how I'm explaining things. That's your working memory, but that's really, really limited. And that's what's in there is determined by your attention. You know? So your attention decides what's going to go into that working memory so that it can be transferred. And it has to be held in there for long enough. Now, if you get distracted, if something captures your attention, then everything in your working memory gets deleted. This idea of multitasking, of doing two things at once, is nonsense because our brains are incapable of doing two things because our working memory is so limited and our attention is limited. And so, therefore, every time you get distracted, every time someone knocks on your door, every time your phone beeps or buzzes or rings or does any of those things, any time a little icon jumps on your computer, anytime anything like that happens, your attention gets caught by that and you lose what's in your working memory. But you not only lose what's in your working memory now when that happens, you lose the last 90 seconds of whatever you were doing. So every time you're distracted, you lose the last 90 seconds of what you're doing. So therefore, you're not just losing that little second that you think you're losing where you actually attend to the thing and then come back. You lose the last 90 seconds because that information hasn't been held long enough to be transferred to that temporary store so it can be transferred to long-term memory. So if you think about how often you're actually distracted, and we're distracted a lot more than we think we're distracted by those things, or how often you're doing two things at once or three things at once, or you know, some people have got you know teams open while they're trying to check their email, while they're trying to write a report, <laughs> and that's just nuts because it's slowing you down and making you less productive. One awesome way to actually be more productive is to do a thing called the Pomodoro technique. Um, Pomodoro is mm -hmm. Italian for tomato. 
And it's just basically they, they're scientists, original scientists, use these timers that look like tomatoes um, that they use in kitchens mm-hmm. over in Italy. Um, and you just set that timer for 25 minutes and you have it somewhere where you can see the timer counting down for 25 minutes and you get rid of all distractions. You get rid of your phone, you get rid of anything that's going to ding, anything that's going to make any sounds, anything that's going to distract you in any way. And you concentrate on one thing for that 25 minutes and you do nothing but that. And then when the timer goes off, you get up and you actually move for five minutes. So do squats or do push-ups or do whatever you're capable of doing, walk around. Don't look at your phone, don't do anything else. And then sit down and do another 25 minutes of concentrated work. It's really important not to do anything else during that five minutes and it's really important to stick to the 25 minutes because we know that that's the optimal time to be productive and to actually concentrate and to actually get information transferred to your long-term memory. So concentrate, so do it for 25 minutes. Now, optimally, you do that four times and that would be two hours of concentrated work. And then you have a longer break where you can do other things like check your email or check your phone or do those things. But that's been shown to be the most productive way to actually get stuff done and actually achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. And I I, I try to do that at least once a day. Sometimes I've got programs on and stuff that I can't, but I try to do at least a two-hour session once a day. And I get more done in that period of time than I do for the rest of the day because it's so... You get into flow, which I know there's lots of stuff on the internet about flow and all this stuff, but most people get frustrated because they never actually get into a state of flow. If you do this on a regular mm-hmm. basis, you will. You'll find it it's, it's insane. And you actually get frustrated when the timer goes off because you're like, oh, I don't want to stop now, but it's really important to stop then because otherwise you'll lose your flow. And so you've got to stop when it actually goes off, get up, move, sit down again, go again, and you'll get straight back into it, which is awesome. So. That would be my number one tip. Look up Pomodoro techniques. Yeah, there's definitely apps out there that help you with that. And, you know, one thing I'll add on to that that I think will help when you're in that 25-minute block is to use the Do Not Disturb feature on your phone. You know, I get it. There are emergencies. And the great thing about it, at least I can only speak for an iPhone, is that your favorites, you know, probably the most important people in your life, if you make them your favorites, they can get through in an emergency. So if that's the reason why you don't use Do Not Disturb, there's a way around that. And for me, do not disturb. I mean, I have, I think, run most of my life on do not disturb. In fact, I got so into it that most of the time now my phone is on do not disturb. I'd rather just know what's happening when I decide to look at it rather than be notified that something is happening, (laughs) you know, unless again, unless it's an emergency, in which case that person's call is going to make it through anyway. And so I don't have to worry about that. All right. I want to use the last few minutes here to talk about your book. So tell us a little bit just about your author journey, you know, how you made the decision to write that book. And then and then tell us a little bit about the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's I, it's actually a book I've been meaning to write for a long time. I actually got approached by, by a uh, publisher about 10 years ago to write a book. And this was the idea. And I never actually got around to it because of everything I was doing, academic and all, all of that sort of thing. And it was actually COVID, to be honest. There was some good things about COVID, not many good things about COVID, but one thing was I had time and my business basically shut down for a little while while COVID was going on. So I, I went, I've got to do something. I'm going to finally write this book. And it was it was so rewarding because it was something that was obviously in my long-term memory, which is where innovation and creativity happens. It doesn't actually happen in your consciousness. It's not something you can actually create. It's something that actually happens back there um, after you've got all this information in there. And so, yeah, I sat down. I wrote it over about three months. I just spent a couple of hours every morning in my in this office that I, I work in quite regularly. I love, you know, getting out here and, and working. It's my little tranquil space. And it happened really quickly. So it's based on a lot of my original research and then combining that with everybody, you know, a lot of other research around how we connect and around the fact that we as humans have actually evolved to connect. So we're not the super species for because we're the strongest, because we're not the strongest species, right? We're not the strongest, we're not the fastest, we're not the, 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 the uh, we don't have the biggest brain. What we do have is connection. We're actually more connected than any other species out there. So a lot of species have very complicated groups. They, you know, for example, bees have these really complicated hives, but one hive would never collaborate with another hive. One hive doesn't turn around to another hive and say, hey, there were some really good flowers over there. You could should collect some because we didn't collect them all. 
or hey, do you need some honey this week because we're running because we've got too much honey and you know you can give us some honey when you've got too much. We're the only species in the world that does that. We're the only species that's ever done that. We collaborate across groups and we collaborate. You know, we're, we're talking across countries, right? I've got a laptop here, which was. You know, the parts to this come from all over the world, come from all, you know, many, many different societies. Putting it together and actually using it as a computer, all that stuff comes from thousands and thousands of, of generations of people actually working together and actually coming up with, you know, how to actually design a computer, how to make metal, how to make plastic, how to, like the crazy amount of information that went into that and the crazy number of people that went into that is incredible. And that's how we've become the super species, through this connection. And our brains have actually evolved. We've got a large brain so that we can actually connect. That's why we have a large brain because it's really, really complicated to actually connect. It's a really difficult thing to do. You need to be able to remember thousands of people's faces to actually remember who's who and who you can trust and who you can't trust and who's part of your group and who's not part of your group and all these things. You know, you need to be able to recognize and understand body language. You need to be able to recognize and understand facial expressions. You need to understand the prosody of the voice when someone's actually talking and all these sorts of things. And all of those things are really important. And so therefore, when you actually sit down and chat to someone, more of your brain, we we're talking about neuroplasticity before, more of your brain is active when you sit down and talk to someone than anything else you can do. So the healthiest thing you can do for your brain, the best thing that, and the most active thing you can do for your brain is actually just sit down and talk to someone. And having someone that you sit down and talk to on a regular basis, face-to-face, -face, not over the computer, because that's not the same, face-to-face, is better for your brain than anything else you can do. It actually improves mental health. Um, it decreases the likelihood of you getting any sort of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. It can decrease the likelihood of that by up to 20 years. It increases your health, your physical health, by just having someone that you actually talk to and increases your, your, your expected lifespan by having someone that you can talk to. So the best thing you can actually do is sit down and chat to someone on a regular basis, and that'll actually activate your brain and keep it nice and healthy. Um, but we're losing that. And one of the, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, and I could go into those, but yeah, there's neurotransmitters that are released when we're face-to-face -face that we don't get when we do it over a computer, when we do it over a device. And we need to do it regularly to actually get all those really beneficial endorphins and neurotransmitters being released so that our brains are healthier and so that our bodies are healthier so that we'll actually live for longer but also it enables us then to collaborate it enables us to keep getting better right we've got this amazing technology these days but we're not actually using it optimally and we need to shift that and start using an optimal way so that we can actually you know thrive into the future but through collaboration through innovation but we can only do that face to face and actually learning how to collaborate and to be innovative together. So that's a little bit about the book. And there's lots of tips. Each, each chapter has both a summary and then tips on how you can actually improve your communication, how you can improve your lifestyle, how you, how you can improve on, on all of these, you know, your brain health and so on. I, I think that's more than a little bit. That, that's a big, I, that's a big idea. And it's, and it's a great reason to pick up a copy of this book. It's a, when it comes out August 15th, it is a big idea because, I mean, you said something really important and, and massive. You, you made a massive declaration that being face-to-face -face is better for your brain than anything else you can do. These conversations that we have with other people. But think back to this experiment that we were all put under for a year at least called the pandemic where we had to be away from people. And I was someone who you know would go to events. I traveled around for events. I was always in front of audiences. I would spend days and most of my events were multi-day events. So I was having, I mean, I had so many conversations every single day, you know, with so many people face to face and I drew on that, but I never really understood why that was so important. I thought that was just my personality or it's just me, or this is how I'm wired. And you just told us we're all wired for this. Like we are all absolutely wired for this. And then the pandemic happened and all of my events were canceled as were everyone else's. And then I didn't have that connection. I had Zoom, which to your point, you know, just it does not activate all of the potential of the interaction. You get some of it, I'm guessing, but you don't get all of it because of that face to face that activates, you know, that probably that last part of the experience to make it all it can be. 
And this is a big idea. I mean, you've already personally got me thinking about how do I make what I want to do with my reinvention business, my school of reinvention, how do I incorporate more of the face-to-face? And you just made me realize something. I don't know if you're familiar with Mind Valley University. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of this? I, or, I, yeah. Yeah. I just started learning more about them. And one of the things I'm learning is how many events they have every year that bring humans together. And I thought to myself, wow, that's going a lot out of their way for what could just be a a virtual experience, which would probably be pretty awesome. But I think that's the magic of it. And that's why it's what you're saying. It's, I mean, and I can't help but realize that most people that I know who are part of the Mind Valley University community are operating on really high levels. And I think it's because they're constantly doing this, whether in their local market or when they come together in across events. But this is a big idea. You've really got me thinking. And honestly, I could just start a whole nother podcast conversation with you about exploring all of this. But we're going to wrap things up here because I want this mic drop moment to be about your book. And, you know, for anybody listening in, just know that you will be able to find all of the links in the show notes. So simply take a look wherever you're watching that or listening to this, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. In the show notes, you'll find all of the information, all of uh, Mark's links, so that you can get your own copy of this book. And like I said, it's available for pre-order right now, and it releases officially on August 15th, 2023. Just in case you're listening to this in 2024, that means you can go get it right now. So (laughs) that's a little message for those of you in 2024. Mark, thank you so much for your time, for your insight. Honestly, I'm just going to put it right out here in recording. I'd love to have you back because I think we can continue this conversation in the fall and talk a little bit more about really applying some of these big ideas in your book to how people can begin their journey to reinvention and get started. For me, that's a big important part. It's getting started. It's building that initial momentum. And you touched on so many key things, connecting with people and the power of that. You talked about focus and how important that is, you know, eliminating distractions. And well, let's just put it the positive way, focusing. If you focus on something, you get something really big out of that. So thank you so much. You've taught us a lot. Any last insights or words you'd love to share with the audience before we officially wrap this up? I'd just like to thank you, Roger. I think you're doing a great job and I think it's amazing what you're doing, you know, helping people change their lives because it's such an important thing. And I think since COVID, you know, a lot of people are now realising that they need to change and, and it's been, uh, it's yeah, it's a great service that you've got out there that you're actually helping people, you know, make that shift because it's going to really change, change people's lives for the better, which is awesome. So thank you. Thanks for having me on and I'd love to come back. Appreciate that. Thank you. And well, you know, what you're teaching and what you're writing about and what's in your book, I think is going to help me help others in a way that's grounded in science. So thank you for that. All right. Well, then thank you again for all of your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Reinvention podcast. Again, I'm your host, Roger Osorio. If you're ready to start your journey to reinvention and want to walk the path with others, visit www.rogerosorio.com and go to the School of Reinvention to check out for yourself how a community-based coaching platform can help you begin your next reinvention. You can also go to rogerosorio.com to purchase my new book, The Journey to Reinvention, and receive some exciting bonuses. Until next time, make your day great.